Hey, welcome to Socialism for All. This file is being recorded for the May 2023 edition of Socialism for All, and it's an audiobook and discussion of May Day Action by the Revolutionary Proletariat by Lenin from 1913. If you like this video, please click like and subscribe, and consider supporting on Patreon at patreon.com slash socialism for all. There's a link to Patreon in the video description. So this piece was first published in Social Democrat number 31, June 15, 1913, and published here according to that text. The source is Lenin Collected Works, Progress Publishers, 1977, Moscow, Volume 19. Translated by the late George Hanna, transcribed by R. Cymbala, HTML markup by B. Baggins and D. Walters, and it's in the public domain at the Lenin Internet Archive within the Marxists Internet Archive. Thanks as usual to MIAMarxists.org for hosting this and thousands of other free Marxist texts. So, earlier this week was May 1st, May Day, International Workers' Day, the real Labor Day, not the fake one that the United States has, which was specifically separated out from May Day in order to try to break off U.S. workers from having international solidarity and demonstrations with other workers around the world. So in celebration of that, we're reading this article from Russian Labor and Revolutionary History. So what was going on around this time? In fact, Lenin is going to introduce us to some of the events going on in 1913. But as more background, the first Russian Revolution was in 1905. This was basically a period from 1905 to 1907 when major concessions were won from the Tsarist government. Now, at that time, Russia was really um, behind Europe in developing capitalism. So Russia's capitalist class prior to 1905 really didn't have much political power. And so the Russian bourgeoisie was trying to pose, as capitalists do, against the existing feudal order as freedom fighters for the whole population. The reality is once capitalists get into power, they hold that power just for themselves over and for the purpose of oppressing and exploiting the majority of the population. Because remember, there's no capitalism without an exploited working class whose surplus value is extracted to make the capitalists rich, to multiply capital. So you had at this time the capitalist, quote, freedom-fighting force. The cadets were their major political party. And then there were also working class and peasant revolutionary parties. Everyone hated Tsarism, and each class had sort of its own approach to trying to liberate itself and get more freedom. So 1905 to 1907 was a period where major reforms were won. There was a parliament set up. Mainly, it was the capitalist class that was the happiest about that. The socialists did participate in it at times, but partly in protest and partly just to demonstrate that this parliament would be really limited in terms of uh, what it would actually be able to do for the proletariat and peasantry. But anyway, you had this multi-year period where there was sort of an increase of rights and there were lots of strikes and demonstrations, as there were leading up to that point as well. And then there was a period of reaction and counter-revolution where the empire struck back, if you will. Eventually, after a few years of that, the anti-capitalist and anti-Tsarist forces did mount another offensive. And then World War II broke out in 1914, and then eventually there was the 1917 revolutions. First in February, the Tsar was completely overthrown. Then a provisional government 
led by the capitalist political parties, was set up. And then later that year, October, there was a socialist revolution when the bourgeois capitalist-led provisional government was overthrown. Then there were five years of war and then the founding of the USSR. So in 1913, we find ourselves at the beginning of the upsurge that would lead into the resistance to World War I. Let's pick up with Lenin's commentary now that that historical background has been clarified. A year has passed since the Lena events, and the first decisive upsurgence in the revolutionary working class movement since the June 3rd coup. Comment, the Lena events, this was when a large group of striking workers were massacred. It was a very bad piece of PR for the government and a rallying point for progressive forces. Continuing, the Tsar's black hundreds and the landowners, the mob of officials and the bourgeoisie have celebrated the 300th anniversary of plunder, tatter incursions, and the disgracing of Russia by the Romanovs. Comment, the Black Hundreds were reactionary forces, pro-monarchist, anti-minority. Um, fascism per se hadn't been invented yet at this time, but these were similarly reactionary, organized, militia-type forces. The Fourth Duma, the Duma was the parliament, has convened and begun its, quote, work, though it has no faith in that work and has quite lost its former counter-revolutionary vigor. Confusion and tedium have beset liberal society, which is listlessly making appeals for reforms while admitting the impracticability of anything even approximating reform. So comment, Lenin here is setting the scene. We have some major strikes starting again, some invigoration of the progressive forces while the capitalist and czarist forces are losing momentum. And now comes a May Day action by Russia's working class, who first held a rehearsal in Riga, then went into resolute action in St. Petersburg on May 1st. This action has rent the dun and dreary atmosphere like a thunderbolt. The tasks of the approaching revolution have come to the fore again in all their grandeur, and the forces of the advanced class leading it stand out in bold relief before hundreds of old revolutionaries, whom persecution by hangmen and desertion by friends have not defeated or broken and before millions of people of the new generation of Democrats and Socialists. Weeks before May Day, the government appeared to have lost its wits, while the gentlemen who own factories behaved as if they had never had any wits at all. The arrests and searches seemed to have turned all the workers' districts in the capital upside down. The provinces didn't lag behind the center. The harassed factory owners called conferences and adopted contradictory slogans, now threatening the workers with punishment and lockouts, now making concessions in advance and consenting to stop work, now inciting the government to commit atrocities, now reproaching the government and calling on it to include May Day in the number of official holidays. But even though the gendarmes, domestic soldiers, showed the utmost zeal, even though they purged the industrial suburbs, even though they made arrests right and left according to their latest lists of suspects, it was no use. The workers laughed at the impotent rage of the Tsar's gang and the capitalist class and derided the governor's menacing and pitiful announcements. They wrote satirical verses and circulated them by hand or passed them on by word of mouth. They produced, as if from nowhere, fresh batches of small, poorly printed leaflets, short and plain but very instructive, calling for strikes and demonstrations, and reminding the people of the old, 
uncurtailed revolutionary slogans of the Social Democrats, Marxists at that time, who in 1905 led the first onslaught of the masses against the autocracy and against monarchy. A hundred thousand on strike on May Day, said the government press the next day. Bourgeois newspapers, using the first telegraphed information, reported 125,000. A correspondent of the central organ of the German Marxists wired from St. Petersburg that it was 150,000. And the day after, the whole bourgeois press quoted a figure of 200,000 to 220,000. Actually, the number of strikers reached 250,000. But apart from the number of Mayday strikers, much more impressive and much more significant were the revolutionary street demonstrations held by the workers. Everywhere in and around the capital, crowds of workers singing revolutionary songs, calling loudly for revolution and carrying red flags, fought for several hours against police and security forces, frantically mobilized by the government. And those workers made the keenest of the Tsar's henchmen feel that the struggle was in earnest, that the police were not faced with a handful of individuals engaged in a trivial Slavophile affair, that it was actually the masses of the capital's working class who had risen. Footnote, Slavophile refers to the Slavophile demonstrations organized by reactionary nationalist elements in St. Petersburg on March 17, 18, and 24. On the occasion of the Serbo-Bulgarian victories over the Turks during the First Balkan War, the reactionaries tried to use the national liberation struggle of the Balkan peoples in the interests of the expansionist, great power politics of Russian Tsarism in the Near East. Back to the text. This was a really brilliant, open demonstration of the proletariat's revolutionary aspirations, of its revolutionary forces, steeled and reinforced by new generations, of revolutionary appeals to the people and the peoples of Russia. Last year, the government and the manufacturers were able to take comfort from the fact that the Lena explosion could not have been foreseen, that they could not have made immediate preparations to combat its consequences. This time, however, the monarchy had displayed acute foresight. There had been ample time for preparation, and the measures taken were most vigorous. The result was that the Tsarist monarchy revealed its complete impotence when faced with a revolutionary awakening of the proletarian masses. Indeed, one year of strike struggle since Lena has shown, despite the pitiful outcries of the liberals and their yes-men against the, quote, craze for striking, against, quote, syndicalist strikes, against combining economic with political strikes and vice versa, this year has shown what a great and irreplaceable weapon for agitation among the masses, for rousing them, for drawing them into the struggle the social democratic or Marxist proletariat had forged for itself in the revolutionary epoch. The revolutionary mass-scale strike allowed the enemy neither rest nor respite. It also hit the enemy's purse, and in full view of the whole world, it trampled into the mud the political prestige of the allegedly strong czarist government. It enabled more and more sections of the workers to regain at least a small part of what had been achieved in 1905 and drew fresh sections of the working people, even the most backward of them, into the struggle. It did not exhaust the capacity of the workers. It was frequently demonstrative action of short duration, and at the same time it paved the way for further, still more impressive, and more revolutionary open action by the masses in the shape of street demonstrations. During the last year, no country in the world has seen so many people on strike for political ends as Russia, or such perseverance, such variety, such vigor in strikes. This circumstance alone shows to the full the pettiness, 
the contemptible stupidity of those liberal and liquidationist sages who tried to, quote, adjust the tactics of the Russian workers in 1912-1913, using the yardstick of European constitutional periods, periods that were mainly devoted to the preparatory work of bringing socialist education and enlightenment to the masses. The colossal superiority of the Russian strikes over those in the European countries, the most advanced countries, demonstrates not the special qualities or special abilities of Russia's workers, but the special conditions in present-day Russia, the existence of a revolutionary situation, the growth of a directly revolutionary crisis. When the moment of a similar growth of revolution approaches in Europe, there it will be a socialist and not a bourgeois democratic revolution as in our country. So comment there, what does that mean? A socialist revolution is one in which the organized workers take control over the capitalists. A bourgeois democratic revolution is when the capitalists take control over the feudal powers. And as I mentioned before, Russia had both of these things in 1917. It had its bourgeois democratic revolution, or rather completed it, I guess you could say, in February 1917 by deposing the Tsar, thereby building on the work since 1905 of setting up the parliament, then getting more rights for the parliament, and then eventually getting rid of the Tsar entirely to pave the way for capitalism. However, heeding Marx and Engels' advice from as early as 1850 or so, the socialists in Russia were able, although capitalism was not fully developed, in 1917, to set up workers' councils, Soviets, a parallel worker-led government-type organized system that was able to challenge the fledgling capitalist government, the provisional government, during the spring, summer, and fall of 1917, and then actually out-organize it and overthrow that, thus having a socialist revolution literally just like nine months later. Remember, Lenin did not think that he was going to see revolution in his lifetime. However, due to the peculiar circumstances of World War I and a bunch of other things aligning, they were able, the Bolsheviks were able to organize and fight all the way to the end. Now, again, capitalism wasn't completely developed, so they did do the NEP and other early uh, policies in the revolutionary history. However, collectivization did resume pretty shortly after that. Anyway, continuing. The proletariat of the most developed capitalist countries will launch far more vigorous revolutionary strikes, demonstrations, and armed struggle against the defenders of wage slavery. This year's May Day strike, like the series of strikes in Russia during the last 18 months, was revolutionary in character as distinguished not only from the usual economic strikes, but from demonstration strikes and from political strikes demanding constitutional reforms, like, for instance, the last Belgian strike. Footnote there, the strike referred to here took place in Belgium from April 14 to April 24, 1913. It was a general strike of the Belgian proletariat demanding a constitutional reform, the introduction of universal suffrage or universal voting. Of the more than one million Belgian workers, between 400,000 and 500,000 took part in the strike. The development of the strike was regularly reported in Pravda, and lists of Russian workers' contributions in aid of the strike were also printed. Back to the text. Those who are in bondage to a liberal world outlook and no longer able to consider things from a revolutionary standpoint cannot possibly understand this distinctive character of the Russian strikes, a character that is due entirely to the revolutionary state of Russia. The epic of counter-revolution and a free play for renegade sentiment 
which is to say reformist sockdem type stuff, has left behind it too many people of this kind, even among those who would like to be called social democrats, or again, at that time, that was the term for Marxists. Russia is experiencing a revolutionary situation because the oppression of the vast majority of the population, not only of the proletariat, but of nine-tenths of the small producers, particularly the peasants, has intensified to the maximum, and this intensified oppression, starvation, poverty, lack of rights, humiliation of the people, is furthermore glaringly inconsistent with the state of Russia's productive forces, inconsistent with the level of the class consciousness and the demands of the masses roused by the year 1905, and inconsistent with the state of affairs in all neighboring, not only European, but Asian countries. But that's not all. Oppression alone, no matter how great, doesn't always give rise to a revolutionary situation in a country. In most cases, it is not enough for revolution that the lower classes don't want to live in the old way. It's also necessary that the upper classes should be unable to rule and govern in the old way. That's what we see in Russia today. A political crisis is maturing before our very eyes. The bourgeoisie has done everything in its power to back counter-revolution and ensure, quote, peaceful development on this counter-revolutionary basis. The bourgeoisie gave hangmen and feudal lords as much money as they wanted. The bourgeoisie reviled the revolution and renounced it. The bourgeoisie licked the boots of Purishkevich, an arch-reactionary, and the knout of Markov II, and became their lackey. The bourgeoisie evolved theories based on European arguments, theories that revile the revolution of 1905 as an intellectualist revolution, and describe it as wicked, criminal, treasonous, and so on and so forth. And yet... Despite all this sacrificing of its purse, its honor, and its conscience, the bourgeoisie, from the cadets to the Octoberists, itself admits that the autocracy and landowners were unable to ensure, quote, peaceful development, were unable to provide the basic conditions for law and order, without which a capitalist country cannot, in the 20th century, live side by side with Germany and the new China. A nationwide political crisis is in evidence in Russia, a crisis which affects the very foundation of the state system, and not just parts of it, which affects the foundation of the edifice and not an outbuilding, not merely just one of its stories. No matter how many glib phrases our liberals and liquidators trot out to the effect that we have, thank God, a constitution, and that political reforms are on the order of the day, only very limited people don't see the close connection between these two propositions. No matter how much of this reformist verbiage is poured out, the fact remains that not a single liquidator or liberal can point to any reformist way out of this situation. Another comment here, a liquidator, Lenin's mentioned this a few times, within the Marxist, or at that time they called it social democratic movement, there were pretty much two major factions. The Bolsheviks, what we would call communists today, which in my view actually uphold real Marxism, and then another faction of more watered-down revisionist stuff, which took three basic forms over like a 20-year struggle between the late 1890s and 1917. First, they were the economists, people who believed that the uh, upcoming revolution should be left to the bourgeoisie in terms of um, seizing political power, and that the proletariat should basically just be left to its own devices to do spontaneous revolts and uh, organize for better conditions on the shop floor, but not revolutionary political power. They then became the Mensheviks, and then they became the liquidators, 
basically three different faces over time of some of the same attempts to water down Marxism, turn it into a reformist movement, hand more power over to the capitalists, and so on. So liquidators continuing the condition of the mass of the population in russia the aggravation of their position owing to the new agrarian policy which the feudal landowners had to snatch at as their last means of salvation the international situation and the nature of the general political crisis that has taken shape in our country such as the sum total of the objective conditions making russia's situation a revolutionary one because of the impossibility of carrying out the tasks of a bourgeois revolution by following the present course and by the means available to the government and the exploiting classes such as the social economic and political situation such as the class relationship in russia that has given rise to a specific type of strike impossible in modern europe from which all sorts of renegades would like to borrow the example not of yesterday's bourgeois revolutions through which shine gleams of tomorrow's proletarian revolution but of today's constitutional situation neither the oppression of the lower classes nor a crisis among the upper classes can cause a revolution they can only cause the decay of a country unless that country has a revolutionary class capable of transforming the passive state of oppression into an active state of revolt and insurrection while that's important i'm going to read that again lenin mentioned earlier that the oppression of the lower classes that on its own is not enough uh, it also needs a crisis among the upper classes that they cannot continue to rule in the same way that the system needs to be changed but let's sum that up neither the oppression of the lower classes nor a crisis among the upper classes can cause a revolution they can only cause the decay of a country unless that country has a revolutionary class capable of transforming the passive state of oppression into an active state of revolt and insurrection so in the united states today do we have a sense of injustice and oppression yes that is very widespread do we have a sense of solidarity that the people have each other's backs uh, not anywhere near the level that we would need we need a lot of work on that and then finally do people feel that things can change we got to work on that as well we got to encourage revolutionary optimism and hope in people because why to get out of the situation of just decay where the lower classes are being oppressed the upper classes are having a crisis clearly that is the case well the missing ingredient is a revolutionary class which in capitalism is the proletariat capable of transforming the passive state of oppression in other words going from a state of taking the kicks to the head turning that into an active state of revolt and insurrection standing up and refusing to take it anymore turning that fight around that is what needs to happen and that is backed by a sense of injustice a reason to act two solidarity feeling that if you step up other people will have your back and three a sense that another world is possible in other words we can get rid of the system and do a new system when those things are in place then the revolutionary class becomes capable of transforming their passive state of oppression into an active state of fighting back revolt and insurrection continuing the role of a truly advanced class a class really able to rouse the masses to revolution really capable of saving russia from decay is played by the industrial proletariat this is the task it fulfills by means of its revolutionary strikes these strikes which the liberals hate and the liquidators can't understand 
are, as the February resolution of the RSDLP, Russian Social Democratic Labor Party, puts it, quote, one of the most effective means of overcoming the apathy, despair, and disunion of the agricultural proletariat and the peasantry, and drawing them into the most concerted, simultaneous, and extensive revolutionary actions. The working class draws into revolutionary action the masses of the working and exploited people, who are deprived of basic rights and driven to despair. The working class teaches them revolutionary struggle, trains them for revolutionary action, and explains to them where to find the way out and how to attain salvation. The working class teaches them not merely by words, but by deeds, by example. And the example is provided not by the adventures of solitary heroes, but by mass revolutionary action combining political and economic demands. How plain, how clear, how close these thoughts are to every honest worker who grasps even the rudiments of the theory of socialism and democracy, and how alien they are to those traitors of socialism and betrayers of democracy from among the intelligentsia, who revile or deride the underground in liquidationist newspapers, assuring naive simpletons that they are also social democrats. The May Day action of the proletariat of St. Petersburg, supported by that of the proletariat of all Russia, clearly showed once again to those who have eyes to see and ears to hear the great historic importance of the revolutionary underground in present-day Russia. The only RSDLP party organization in St. Petersburg, the St. Petersburg Committee, compelled even the bourgeois press before the May Day action, as well as on the eve of January 9, and on the eve of the tercentenary of the Romanovs, as well as on April 4, to note that St. Petersburg Committee leaflets had appeared again and again in the factories. Footnote there, April 4, that reference, 1913, was the first anniversary of the shooting of workers in the Lena Goldfields. It was marked by a one-day strike of St. Petersburg workers in which over 85,000 people participated. Continuing, those leaflets cost colossal sacrifices. Sometimes they're quite unattractive in appearance. Some of them, the appeals for demonstration on April 4, for instance, merely announced the hour and place of the demonstration in six lines, evidently set in secret and with extreme haste, in different printing shops and in different types. We have people, quote, also social democrats, who, when alluding to these conditions of underground work, snicker maliciously or curl a contemptuous lip and ask, if the entire party were limited to the underground, how many members would it have? Two or three hundred? This is quoting from number 95 of Luch, a renegade newspaper, in its editorial defense of Mr. Sadov, who has the sad courage to be an outspoken liquidator. This issue of Luch appeared five days before the May Day action, i.e. at the very time the underground was preparing the leaflets. Messrs. Don, Patrusov and company, who make these disgraceful statements, must know that there were thousands of proletarians in the party ranks as early as 1903, and 150,000 in 1907, that even now thousands and tens of thousands of workers print and circulate underground leaflets as members of underground RSDLP cells. But the liquidationist gentlemen know that they are protected by Stolopin, quote, legality from a legal refutation of their foul lies and their grimaces, which are fouler still at the expense of the underground. See to what extent these despicable people have lost touch with the mass working class movement and with revolutionary work in general. Use even their own yardstick, deliberately falsified to suit the liberals. You may assume for a moment that 
two or three hundred workers in St. Petersburg took part in printing and distributing those underground leaflets. What's the result? Two or three hundred workers, the flower of the St. Petersburg proletariat, people who not only call themselves social democrats but work as social democrats, people who are esteemed and appreciated for it by the entire working class of Russia, people who do not prate about a broad party, but make up in actual fact the only underground social democratic party existing in Russia. These people print and circulate underground leaflets. The Luch liquidators, protected by Stolopin censors, laugh contemptuously at the two or three hundred, the underground and its exaggerated importance, etc. And suddenly, a miracle occurs. In accordance with the decision drawn up by half a dozen members of the Executive Commission of the St. Petersburg Committee, a leaflet printed and circulated by two or three hundred, 250,000 people rise as one in St. Petersburg. The leaflets and the revolutionary speeches by workers at meetings and demonstrations do not speak of an open working-class party, freedom of association, or reforms of that kind pushed by the liquidators, with the phantom of which the liberals are fooling the people. They speak of revolution as the only way out. They speak of the republic as the only slogan which, in contrast to liberal lies about reforms, indicates the change needed to ensure freedom indicates the forces capable of rising consciously to defend it. The two million inhabitants of St. Petersburg see and hear these appeals for revolution, which go to the hearts of all toiling and oppressed sections of the people. All St. Petersburg sees from a real, mass-scale example what is the real way out and what is lying liberal talk about reforms. Thousands of workers' contacts and hundreds of bourgeois newspapers, which are compelled to report the St. Petersburg mass action, at least in snatches, spread throughout Russia the news of the stubborn strike campaign of the capital's proletariat. Both the mass of the peasantry and the peasants serving in the army hear this news of strikes, of the revolutionary demands of the workers, of their struggle for a republic and for the confiscation of the landed estates for the benefit of the peasants. Slowly but surely, the revolutionary strikes are stirring, rousing, enlightening, and organizing the masses of the people for revolution. The two or three hundred underground people express the interests and needs of millions and tens of millions. They tell them the truth about their hopeless position, open their eyes to the necessity of revolutionary struggle, imbue them with faith in it, provide them with the correct slogans, and win these masses away from the influence of the high-sounding and thoroughly spurious reformist slogans of the bourgeoisie. And two or three dozen liquidators from among the intelligentsia, using money collected abroad and among liberal merchants to fool unenlightened workers, are carrying the slogans of that bourgeoisie into the workers' midst. The May Day Strike, like all the revolutionary strikes of 1912-13, to 13, has made clear the three political camps into which present-day Russia is divided. The camp of hangmen and feudal lords, of monarchy and the secret police. It has done its utmost in the way of atrocities and is already impotent against the masses of the workers. The camp of the bourgeoisie, all of whom, from the cadets to the Octoberists, are shouting and moaning, calling for reforms and making fools of themselves by thinking that reforms are possible in Russia. The camp of the revolution, the only camp expressing the interests of the oppressed masses. All the ideological work, all the political work in this camp is carried out by underground social democrats or 
again, Marxists alone, by those who know how to use every legal opportunity in the spirit of social democracy and who are inseparably bound up with the advanced class, the proletariat. No one can tell beforehand whether this advanced class will succeed in leading the masses all the way to a victorious revolution. But this class is fulfilling its duty, leading the masses to that solution, despite all the vacillations and betrayals on the part of the liberals and those who are, quote, also social democrats, or again, Lenin is using this phrase mockingly, it is the liquidator's own phrase, we're Marxists too, yeah, no you're not, all the living and vital elements of Russian socialism and Russian democracy are being educated solely by the example of the revolutionary struggle of the proletariat, and under its guidance. This year's May Day action has shown to the whole world that the Russian proletariat is steadfastly following its revolutionary course, apart from which, there is no salvation for Russia that is suffocating and decaying alive. So that's the end of the audiobook. What do I have to add to this? I like this a lot. Um, Lenin saw that the struggle was going into an upsurge and wanted to really fan those flames, point the way, point out the obstacles and enemies, and say, charge to the people who were moving forward. And that, I think, is my message. That's what we need to do as well. You know, going back to that key point, about until the revolutionary class stops just lying down and taking the abuse, stands up, pushes back, fights back. Until that happens, you just decay. And that's the state that we're in now. So keep fighting. You know, we're seeing at least a slight upsurge of the labor movement in the United States today. We need to see a lot more. We need to see that grow from 1% increase in unionized people to 5%, to 10%. And then we need to take those unions and make them more and more militant so that they're not just company unions. We need to keep expanding the radicalization of the working class because we, the working class, the dispossessed proletariat, whether you're employed or not, whether you're a student or not, whatever, if you do not have capital to live off of but have to sell your labor or beg or any number of other things that people get reduced to in capitalism if they don't own profit-generating property. We are the only ones who can end this system and create something new, but not if we're lying down. So we got to stand up, we got to organize, we got to build class consciousness, solidarity, network, unite for action against the capitalists who would trade our lives and futures for their short-term profits. That's not a system we need to hang on to. It is our duty to abolish it.